0: Welcome to the Fail4 podcast. The purpose of this podcast is change the negative stigma around failure into a positive. Failure is only a negative if we do not learn from it and we give up. Welcome back to the Fail4 podcast. Today, we've got Jay Allen. Jay Allen is an award-winning speaker. He's ex-military. He's now a business coach and also runs the Boardroom Mastermind Group. So welcome to the podcast, Jay. How are you doing? Henry, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm great, thanks. Awesome, awesome. So let's get into it. So take me back as far as you need to go to give us context of how you got to where you are now. So take us back and tell us your story. Okay, thanks very much. I'll try and
1: keep it as brief as possible. Um, So finishing school and into college, still didn't have any clue of what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, finished college with just enough um, qualifications to get into uni and still didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um,
0: <laughs> I <like> trained, that.
1: <laughs> trained as a psychologist and then uh, got a first in psychology and went to go and work in a psychology department as a social worker. Um, and as I got the job, within four months, realised it was something that I certainly didn't want to do and therefore was looking for a way out. Um, when the army turned up in town, the British army turned up in town, looking for post-grad recruits, um, the Falklands War had recently been over and shall we just say that there were a few vacancies that had become available um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and I I don't come from a military family I'd never ever ever had any given considerations to join in the army but when they were looking for post-grad recruits and I'd got a, a qualification and they said in in lieu of delivering for four five years minimum service that they would offset the cost of any of our educational qualifications and I looked at how much debt I got from college and that somebody else was willing to be able to pay that off, I thought well, three or four years, Queen and Country, it can't be that bad, I'll sign up Um, so I joined the British Army as a psychologist, Um, I remember going to the recruitment office and them looking at my degree and saying a psychologist we don't need any of them, we know we're all mad Uh, (laughs) Um, so I was invited to re-qualify in medicine um, so I went to university, back to university for another year paid for by the army to qualify as a paramedic um, and I joined the year, uh, joined the army a year later as a combat medic um, with the expectation of doing five year service to pay off my debts what I didn't realise is that I was going to fall in love with the job and everything that it offered um, and signed to do my full 22 uh, with views with to turn it into a career really and um, Things went particularly well. I ended up on an accelerated promotion scheme. I did some great work with some wonderful people. um, Travelled all over the world to all of those places that you don't get advertised on TUI, like like the first Gulf um, or Bosnia or Kosovo or East Timor or Sierra Leone. um, All of the wonderful places in the world that you probably want to go back and see again, but without a berry and a gun.
0: Um, Yes, yeah yeah um, and, thought... and so was this it was this in combat were you in combat or was this just you know stationed at different places yeah very much so so um,
1: my claims to fame is that from the day i finished qualifying and joining my first regiment to the day that i finally left 12 and a half years later that there's never been a british serviceman serve anywhere on an operational tour without me having toured at the same time so i've been to every operational theater that we've been in for the for the period of time that i was in the military um my job as a combat medic was to be on the front line alongside the uh, the infantry and to be able to patch them up and get them back to a hospital so they could then be stabilized. Um, and everything was going particularly well. like I say, I was on an accelerated promotion scheme. I was doing well, I got married, um, had my first child everything was everything was working particularly well. Um, and then I had an accident. Um, I had quite a serious accident. i was uh, um, I, I was injured quite significantly physically um there's a lovely quick story if i may about that i've i've been spent 12 years as a medic in the army and, and fixing and patching up everybody else i'll never forget the day i was injured uh, and I had, a, I had a terrible accident i was in and out of consciousness I, I filled myself full of morphine and waited for the the additional ground crew and the medics to come along and as these two medics ran towards me i started to not just see the red cross on their arm but I started to recognise the faces as, as people that were in my team, were in my section. And there's these two lads running towards me going, no way, no way, it's Sot Major that's injured, it's Boss, it's Boss who's injured. And the last thing that went through my mind before I passed out was, were they good recruits? Were they, were they top of the class? <laughs> <laughs> or were they the from the back? <laughs> But I I I live to tell the tale, so they must have been they must have been all right.
0: They must have been all right. Yeah, they Absolutely. must have, they must have just been all right. Um, cool. So I
1: I was injured in this Second Gulf. Um, I was put into a uh, a prolonged coma for my own best interests. Um, I was flown out of theatre back into Germany, which is where the regiment had been based. I was stabilised in Germany and then flown back to Portsmouth to being, begin my rehabilitation, and I spent. I should have been in hospital for about six or eight months, um, learning how to walk again after my injury. Um, And then four months into my rehabilitation at Headley Court, I was diagnosed with um, significant or or complex PTSD um, and started to have flashbacks, one, from the incident and the injury, but two, from previous tours that had been on and, and things that had happened years and years and years previously. And it was the first ever time, even as a qualified paramedic, that I'd come to this realisation that your mental health is directly impacted to your physical well-being. Because I was doing all of the physical work and the rehabilitations to learn all the things that I should be doing. I was with a physiotherapist two hours a day, six days a week, and yet I was getting worse to the extent that the physiotherapist went back to the surgeon and said, you you need to look at a scan again. You've, you've clearly missed something. There's a problem here is, is getting worse and worse and worse. And it it was, it was then that I first got diagnosed with PTSD. We stopped my physical rehabilitations to be able to fix my head, Um, took them nearly 14 months to be able to play with my head and find out what the problems were and how to be able to overcome them. And yet within weeks of my head being fixed, my physicality caught back up again, and i was I was better and walking again far quicker than they'd really anticipated and It was almost my mental health that was preventing my physical health from recovering
0: until it was ready for me to, to catch up. but I spent twenty two months in hospital wow and and you know you're so right in what you're saying we, we've Everything I'm learning, and I've not even been through a situation, you know, like that. And firstly, hats off and thank you for your service to the country. You know, we really appreciate what you've done in the past and and that that now you've recovered. And you're so right with everything in life, isn't it? Our mental health is so... Entwined into how we live our life day to day and i've seen it this year i've just found things like walking and running and it just helps my mental health and it's my health linked to my mental health and they're kind of it is they're so intertangled with each other aren't they um so tell me um you know I, i know ptsd and and is 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 a very serious thing for soldiers and for anyone that serves and um to be in that situation must have been really difficult what what was it that started to change so you've got you know you were in that situation um, your health wasn't improving and then they realized it's your mental health what were the steps that you were having to take what were the doctors and what was the advice you were getting
1: I think to answer that question fairly we've just got to put it into the context because I often say I was diagnosed with PTSD before it became fashionable um, so I was diagnosed in 2000 and I think we've gone a long long way in the last 23 years at the point of recording this podcast to be able to really understand complex PTSD and its needs and how to be able to treat it. Whereas 23 years ago, it was very much a case of give him a pill and see if it works and can we we get him back into uniform? Um, How quick can we get him back on the job? Um, Any of the treatments that I went through, and I went through five different treatment protocols to be able to try and get it under control. What we now know is any one of those would have worked if we'd given it long enough to work before we decided, no, that's clearly not working, but let's try something else. Let's try something else. So 23 years ago, I was a bit of a pin cushion for testing ideas and thoughts and suggestions about how to be able to
0: deal with complex PTSD. So you were the guinea pig, basically. Yeah, yeah and 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 what was the recovery process was it was it tablets and things like that or was it were they in, working with psychologists what what was the process yeah. you went through
1: so so initially it was medication just to try and stop me i mean i used to have flashbacks to the ex- that was so real that i thought i was back in theater even though i knew i was in a hospital bed i thought my hospital bed was in theater um and there was just this vivid, really weird sense that you knew where you were, but you didn't really trust where you were. And therefore, anybody and everybody was either an enemy or somebody that was on covert ops or something. Your mind just played continual tricks with you all the time. It was almost like um, Call of Duty, but but playing out in real life.
0: Um which must be—I'll sort of take a lot of energy as well, because you're just continuously adrenaline pumping. You know, in that fight mode, aren't you? That you just—you know—survival mode all Absolutely. the time. Absolutely. I mean,
1: that, that fight or flight is with you all the time. And then when you when you're physically injured and you can't get out of bed to be able to try and do anything about it, you just feel like a instead of a guinea pig, a sitting duck. Um, so. So there was medication initially, to just trying to calm my head down and to stop me from having these panic attacks and and allow me to sleep. I, I probably hadn't slept properly for about five months, um, at the point where they just said, look, we've we've just got to physically intervene and slow this guy down. Um, so so we did that initially, and then we did some psychotherapy, um, and then we did some hypnotherapy. And eventually I ended up with some aromatherapy just to try and disassociate with some of the smells that I've been subjected to and some of the insinuations and what that meant for me. So it was a complex approach to a complex problem to be able to understand as to what are the triggers. And because in a military scenario, you could have so many different triggers that in actual fact, you could be curing one whilst triggering something else. So it was a case of a a small team of very, very, very dedicated professionals i take my hat off the reason i'm here today at all is because of the dedication of service to people at headley court Um, i owe them my life Um, of people being able to just stop and understand that you're not just another peg in in a board you're not just another bed to be able to take the time to look at the individuals to be able to identify and unpick what are the problems what's causing it how to be able to overcome that have we got a, a, something in place, or do we need to create something that a team of about four or five different professions from different professionals, from different backgrounds came together um, and worked me through my medicate, you know, my pharmaceutical needs um, for a brief period, and then subsequently my psychotherapy needs in order to be able to move back towards City Street.
0: Wow. And yeah, and hats off to those people, people in that medical center. And I think, you know, that's, that's where it's needed. You've given your life to, to, to the, to the service and to then, you know, go through that difficult time to get that support. That's the, that's the balance that's needed, isn't it? Cause I'm sure there's probably lots of people that have been through, through that, that have been in the service that, that, you know, that support is so, so needed and so necessary, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, I mean, I don't... they suggest
1: that PTSD, um, is probably um, lurking around underneath the surface for about one in three soldiers or one in three people that serve and yet it takes between nine and thirteen years post-trauma before it starts to service and show itself on a day-to-day basis and it's about people recognizing that no he's not a violent alcoholic um, that you might see and he might present with now but 10 years ago something might have happened that subsequently bubbled its way through to the surface, that you've got to have somebody that's willing to be able to look at the overall problem as opposed to just trying to treat the cause that's being presented at the day.
0: Definitely. And it's having empathy for people in their situations, like you say, to read the situation and say, OK, this guy has been erratic, you know, aggressive or drunk or, or whatever the, the showing signs are. And, and what why is this? I certainly know um, one of my best friends from school. Um, it was in the Marines um, and toured in Afghanistan and was blown out of a armored vehicle. Um, and, you know, he was out, been out for quite a few years now, and he really struggles. Um, and you can definitely see that and, and different, you know, different things come out out. And it's that's, I think, uh, as a human race, we need to, uh, and there are a lot of empathetic people out there. But empathy is, is, a, is, is a is a massive thing that we need to have when people are showing those signs. So tell me, Jay, um, and I hope this isn't too much of a personal question. Do you still have PTSD? You know, do you still have flashbacks now, from all those time ago? Is it still do you still have to work on on, you know, on your obviously, everyone has to work on their mental health day to day. But do you still have to work on that from back then?
1: It's a great question, thanks for asking um, and no not, no, no apology necessary, I've, I've agreed to this podcast on the understanding that it's about failing forward and being willing to be able to talk about the biggest things in our lives are often the ones, the lessons that we can learn the most from if we are willing to stop and look at the lesson, um, so to answer your question uh, f- fully, Uh, thankfully no touch wood wherever this may be Um, (laughs) I haven't had a flashback now since 2018 Um, um, and that's predominantly down to the fact that as the final phase of my treatment before I was released from the military and and, and medically discharged um, we went through a series of coping mechanisms um, and a set of Skills, if you like, that I was encouraged to be able to do on a day to day basis, which involves a little bit of meditation, a little bit of gratitude, journal and and journaling and that type of thing, in order to be able to keep on top of something that lives within you. Um, I, I said for World Mental Health Day earlier this year. Depression and PTSD and clinical medical or clinical psychiatric conditions can't be cured um there's no such thing of being able to take away my ptsd i can't take a pill i can't because i can't unlearn what i've learned what i can learn to do is have a set of skills in in my toolbox that allow me to be able to manage it so it doesn't manifest itself and cause me a problem on a day-to-day basis um and the reason why in 2018 i had a bit of a blip it took about five weeks to be able to get over it um, was the fact that for the last 10 years or so, our life had been so, so good that I got to the point where i have become quite lazy about those set of skills. I wasn't practicing on a day-to-day basis. I thought life's too good. I've passed that now. That every now and again, it'll come back and bite you on the ass just to remind you that it still exists.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's so gold what you're saying there, Jay, because I think everyone can relate to to that in the sense that our mental health, it needs to be, ex- it's like exercise going to the gym. We see everyone, you know, you need to be physically fit, you need to do this diet, you need to go to this gym, you need to do this, and you're working out. But quite often when we get depression and when, you know, I, I know people close to me that have got depression, they go, the first thing, go to the doctors, the doctor goes, right, here we are, here's some tablets, have some tablets. You know, like you say, you're just masking those tablets. What you need is the toolbox to go, Okay, what is it I'm going to do on a daily basis that's going to help me? And I certainly know um, that when I don't do certain things, like if I don't go for a walk, if I don't, you know, there's certain things I do. If I don't read, if I look at my phone for too long, the mental health that issues start to kick back in and, and whether you've even got depression or not, or even had PTSD, we all have mental health that we need to exercise and keep in a good place. So I think that's an absolute valuable thing to say. I think I've never looked at it like a toolbox. Um, and now sort of, I'm going to use that now, having a, having your mental health toolbox, your exercise, what you're going to be doing is, is fantastic. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, I I refer to it as my mental wealth
1: toolbox. Um, because isn't it ironic that we spend so much time carving out physical times to either go for a run or a walk or go to the gym and this and the other to be able to build out the cannons whereas in actual fact the whole of our body is just a transport mechanism to carry around the biggest thing that we need in our lives uh, the brain and our mental well-being Um, this is just a transport mechanism this is your porsche or your Land Rover or your Mini, Um, all of this, all of the rest of this stuff is to allow this to get round and see the rest of the world. And yet we give this the least thought and idea and, and consideration when it comes to looking after ourselves. We fit it in when we're reminded
0: definitely Uh, you know you're so right our our body is just a vehicle isn't it and um you know we need our body but you need your mind to be able to tell your body to go out and do those things as well don't you so it's it's such a equilibrium of balance between the two of needing needing your health and your and your mental health and your mental wealth as you say um so how much of um because you seem you strike me jay we've only met once haven't we at one of nick james's place so i've not got to know you properly yet but what I'm liking is that you're quite open with what you're talking about, and I think from me seeing and I've noticed this a lot with with men in in in, in our in our especially in our country with suicide being one of the biggest killers is that a lot of men struggle to talk so through your recovery, did did you find it easy to talk? Or is this something you've now become good at? Because clearly, you know, you're quite open to vulnerability and sharing your story. How was your path of opening up and talking about the things and, and you know, whether it's counselors, friends, family, how was that journey for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, until I had my breakdown,
1: I genuinely believed I was invincible. Um, I am more of a man now than I ever was as an indefensible, uh, as a undestructible dis- soldier um, because I used to keep everything with a tight lip. Um, no In my eyes, to show any form of not just breakdown or, or, or to show any form of emotion was a sign of weakness. At the end of the day, I, I was a soldier. I was in the army. And yes, I might have been a medic, but I was assigned to some of the most professional fighting force infantry units in the world. Um, To show any form of emotion whatsoever be it a smile or a grin was a sign of ah there's a chink in the armour so you were button faced all the time Um, and it wasn't until you couldn't do that anymore and like i said i mean i i had a breakdown i was sectioned under the mental health act for eight months um, on suicide watch uh, whilst they tried to work through where what and when it's the first time ever not just as an adult, but it's the first time ever that I'd been forced to stop and look at myself in the mirror, not just physically, but mentally as well. And I came to the conclusion that I didn't necessarily like what I saw. Um, And I often say my breakdown and my sectioning was the opportunity to almost have this evangelical rebirth experience that over the course of spending some time in a very secure, safe environment where you don't have to deal with the day-to-day shit because everything else has been managed for you. You slowly, day by day, week by week, get to piece together and make this decision. Who do I want to be when I leave? Um, And the person you see before you today is as a result of 23 years of decisions of who do I want to be. and we evolve into who we are as a human being through childhood and school and pubescence and teenagers and peer group pressure. I had the privilege of being able to ask all of those questions again of myself when I was 28, 29. Um, And I I now see my breakdown as my my, my most successful opportunity to rebuild
0: the person I've always wanted to be and didn't quite know how to become. Wow, I mean that's amazing um, to be able to have that awareness and and have that moment. And um, I certainly know for me, when I lost my business three years ago, I call it the best worst year of my life. It was tragic. Every time I tell people, they sort of put their head to side and say, oh, "I'm really sorry to hear that." I'm like, "No, actually, it was it was probably the defining moment." And and in a, it, you know, it sounds quite spiritual, but I it feel like that's when my life restarted was three years ago. Um, and it sounds very similar. And I think a lot of people that have been through these difficult periods. That's when they really find themselves. So you know, firstly, I'm so glad that you you um, didn't take your own life, and that you're now here to tell the story, to help inspire other people to be able to share their stories and have those moments. So thank you, and and it just shows, doesn't it, that. The more more we talk and the more we um, open up and and for men, if, if we can lead more men to be able to have those moments and hopefully not have to go to those dark places, but feel that it's okay to be able to have a conversation with each other, because I think that's one of the things that certainly helps me in my mental health is talking to people and it helped me through some of those difficult times being able to talk but i still think there is a bit of a negative stigma around opening up like you say stiff upper lip you know wanting to be i'm a man i need to be in control of this situation i need to be running my family this this job whatever it's in so yeah, you know thank you for for being vulnerable and sharing your story it's been it's really you know it's 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 a difficult story because of the how diff you know the, the times you had, but also it's extremely inspiring to be able to to come out of that and and be doing doing what you're doing now. So thank you.
1: Thank you. There's there's a lovely quote that I uh, I'm reminded of from Winston Churchill of all people, um, and he simply said, "When you're going through hell, keep going." <laughs> um, and it doesn't you know at, at the point in our lives where we feel like everything's against us. I, I'm fortunate enough to have been reminded several times over now, I'll turn 50 this month and I've had 50 years of getting used to and getting through. I've, I, I've, been, I've been challenged multiple times in my life to within inches of my life. And yet I'm still here. And I've got 50 years experience of, of getting through it. Um, and it doesn't matter what period I'm going through right now and how difficult it is. I'm not going to be going through it for the next 50 years because I've got 50 years experience of how to be able to challenge it differently.
0: Definitely. Absolutely love that. Yeah. And I love that saying by Winston Churchill. I've not heard that one before. Um, So that's, yeah, love that. If you just got to keep going, just got to keep going. If you're going through hell, Whatever you do, don't stop in it, because that's shit. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I, I always say that you can ch- literally change your life in 90 days. You can change some habits or change a job, change a career, start exercising your mind, your body, whatever it is. In 90 days, if you st- if you put one foot in front of the other and you keep going, you can really ch- change your life. And, and over a year and compound it over to years, that can have a massive difference. So tell me, Jay, at this point, you've, you've now managed to get your health and you're walking again you've been um you've now left the army you're now civilian and your life starts again so what did what were your thoughts then what was your plan what were you thinking you know how was that for you and what was the plan next sure um so i'd
1: left um like I said, still got my psychology degree, so I could have gone back to psychology, but I'd already determined that I didn't necessarily want to do that. I was a qualified paramedic, so, um, you know, with 10 years experience in the military. So I could have gone into the NHS and and carried on there. And I've been a sort major. I've managed a large team. I've managed a decent, you know, a seven figure budget. Um, I've managed 128 people I'd, on my CV. I looked good. So I filled out a CV. I went for some interview training. I put myself out there, and I started applying for jobs. Jobs that I thought were relevant to my skills and experiences. Uh, and thankfully, my CV looked well enough that I was always interviewed. I was always offered an interview. Um, and over the next ten months, I went for 147 interviews. But you see, there was one problem. I believe in telling the truth. So when we got to an interview and we're going through, and as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm quite communicative. I, I, in, I interview relatively well also. We have a good chat and we're getting to the point where they might be considering giving me a job. And then they say, Jake, we've, we've, just, we, we've noticed on your CV, there's a bit of a gap. It says here you left the uniform and, and, and the army in 2000, and yet you're applying for a job at the moment. It's July, 2002. Can you tell us a little bit about what have you been doing since you left the army? And I said, yeah, I've, I've been in hospital for two years with post-traumatic stress disorder, but I'm fine now. and I'm looking forward to. On four occasions, they stopped the interview and physically escorted me from the premises, stating that they have a duty of care to protect their staff
0: that's insane that is absolutely insane and firstly well hats off because i'm the same as you i live my life heart on my sleeve transparency it is is the only way that i live and like that's just tragically awful of those companies they must have i mean to be fair you've probably done all right by not being in those companies because they sound like they'd have an awful company culture um but that must have been really tough to to have to 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 deal with that um and
1: it was i mean for for every time that you got knocked back particularly because you told the truth about one your service and two the reasons why you'd had a break um it, it knocks your confidence even more so with regards to whether you should have applied for this job in the first place or whether you should try something a little bit less demanding so you start from applying from a a national manager or a national director of a business and you you end up well to put things into context 147 interviews later I'd now completely and utterly run out of cash and all of the money that I'd earned from the military when I left I was now hemorrhaging cash because I'd still got a mortgage and I was still paying a divorce and I'd still got a car on finance and credit card debt and everything and 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 yet there was nothing coming in um and you can tell yourself as many times as you want you know tomorrow will be better a, a new start tomorrow but but like you say compounding over 10 months all of a sudden you start to feel worthless that i ended up going to reed recruitment i'll never forget the day i went to reed recruitment close to relatively close to where i lived in leeds in west yorkshire and i went in and i said listen i'm not giving you my CV you don't need to see my qualifications I just need a job. I don't care what it is. I remember what I said. I said, I don't care what it is. I don't care whether I end up getting a little pair of pincers and go and pick up litter off the side of the motorway. I'm not leaving your office today until you've given me a job that when I go home tonight, at
0: least I can feel like I've been of use Um, because I feel worthless again. Which must have been playing havoc on your mental health coming out of that. You've just got yourself sorted and then now... You know, society's giving you a right kick up, kick, kick down the street as well. So, and and then what happened next?
1: Well, the woman said, um, "Oh, I noticed that you've got a driving license. Um, would you mind going to cut grass?" And I was thinking, "Well, it's the end of April. It's going to be a nice spring. Why not? Let's let's give it a go." And I says, "Well, what's what's the job?" And she said, "Well." we'd offered this job it's a private estate over in north yorkshire and they've got 36 acres that need mowing and we'd sent a lads to go and start this morning and he just didn't turn up could you possibly go tomorrow because the 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 employer's been on and he's, he's not happy i said give me the address i'll go now oh that's wonderful thanks ever so much so i turned up at this private estate um I didn't even know that they got a tradesman's entrance. I turned up at the proper big gates right up to the front of the house type stuff um, in a nice car, in a nice suit, because that's what you do when you go to work. And I drove up this drive three and a half minutes between the gate and the house. Wow. Upper, um, upper up heated drive so it doesn't frost up in winter. Um so i pulled up at this nine million pound mansion house um and i get out and there's nine staff on the estate and one of the members of staff walks over to me and he says um have you got an appointment with the boss and i says no Says, I've, I've come about a grass cutters job and he looked at me and he looked at me car and he said not dressed like that son get yourself right back and get some coveys on come round here i'll show you what to do and i went on and i, I put a pair of coveralls on um, and I got sh- shown this little John Deere sit-on tractor. And he said, right, lad, start buttons there, lawns that way, go and cut grass. <laughs> and, and I looked at this John Deere tractor and I thought, there is no way I'm going to drive 36 acres on that and then watch it break down and we have to pull it back with me. So I spent all of that afternoon with my suit on under my coveys and I stripped down this John Deere tractor to give it its first prey, give it a service, pump its tyres up, sharpen the sword as it were sort of thing you know and every now and again I saw the twitch of curtains from the house as somebody's seen this nice car in the gardener's window you know gardener's little car park area and this John Deere tractor in bits and someone obviously paying attention type stuff and the following morning I get on this John Deere and for the next six or seven weeks I turn up early, I go home late, I listen to a lot of gerber on my little walkman it was well before ipods and podcasting were available on my little walkman i'm listening to a lot of business development type stuff tony robbins um and i go and cut grass but i decided i'm a sergeant major from the british army i am going to cut grass like they've never had a grass cutter before i'm going to do this with military precision i'm going to turn his meadows into a golf course because whoever this chap is, if he's got a nine million pound house and nine staff on his estate, one day I might not just be his grass cutter. Maybe I've just got to the start from the bottom up and work, it, work up again. And I'm going to cut his grass and I'm going to get noticed. And I might end up being his head groundsman. I might be his chauffeur. I might become his, his butler, his gentleman's gentleman. Whoever this chap is, I'm going to impress him. And after seven weeks of his car being driven in and driven out with the chauffeur, and I'm listening to me John Deere and trugging along, I turn round and this beautiful Rolls Royce with the chauffeur has come off the path. He's come along the meadows. The chauffeur's opened the door and this old gentleman, an older gentleman, has stepped out the back. I'm undoing me headset. And he says, you're not just a grass cutter, are you son? And I went, no, sir. I'm a former sergeant major in the British Army, but today I'm cutting your grass. And he went, son. He says, I can't have a sergeant major from the British Army cutting me lawns. He says, Why don't you come up to the house and tell me how a sergeant major from the British Army ended up cutting me lawns? And with that, he got back in his car, and I ended up having to follow him on my little John Deere tractor. <laughs> And I pulled up outside this beautiful house and the the groundsman's running across going, no, mister, no, mister, you can't go in there. That's mister's house. And I walked into his house with a pair of muddy boots on into his kitchen. And he stood there and made me a coffee and a bacon butty. And we sat down in the side of his kitchen and I told him exactly the same story that I've just shared with you. And he smiled at himself and he said, do you want a proper job? Well, I couldn't resist it. I, I had to say, well, as long as you don't mind your grass not getting cut anymore, what have you got in mind, sir? And he said, well, well, here's a business card. On Wednesday next week, come to the address on that card. Come smartly dressed like you came when you first arrived and tell Janine you've come about the job. He says, until then, get your bloody mo- boots off my kitchen floor and go and cut some grass. <laughs> And I stepped out of his house and I looked at this business card. And for the last seven weeks, I've been cutting the lawns for Sir Ken Morrison from Morrison Supermarkets. And five days later, I was successfully
0: interviewed to be his national training director. Wow. What, what a story. I feel a bit emotional here, Jay, like you're making me well up here. Like that's, I mean, what a story and what, a, you know, the, the attitude and the commitment and just to just, just take it back and just say, well, I'm just gonna do this this really, really well, and then see where it goes to then be given that opportunity is amazing. Hats off to you. But also hats off to Ken. You know, I
1: I am today everything because somebody like him gave me a chance gave me a chance. Um and I, I just wanted to express through your podcast to everyone listening that you never know who's watching. You've just got to be willing to be the best version of you today that you can be because you never know who's watching. Everything I am today, I owe to the fact that somebody else, when I was at my lowest, gave me a leg up.
0: Yeah, but you've got to take gratitude to yourself as well which i'm sure you do as part of your gratitude list that you made that happen you went in that day you turned up in your suit a lot of people might have, a lot of people have gone i'm not doing that i'm not grass cutting or i'm just going to go home and i'll turn up tomorrow or turn up a bit late you know not turn up so completely hats off to you to go
1: my salary as a grass cutter was for doing 42 hours a week uh, on the on the estate my salary for the month was fourteen pounds more than my mortgage. Wow.
0: <laughs> wow. But it, look at you know that that opportunity has led you on to another fantastic opportunity. So tell me, you then start going working for Morrison's. Where does it take you next? I mean, I'm loving this. This this interview is fantastic, Jane. i you're an inspiration, and it's you know it's such a great story to hear. So yeah, where, what happened next? Well.
1: When I got the job, it was, I found out it was, it was a fixed-term tenancy um, to cover for maternity leave. Their national training director was going to take a year off to bring up a small family, and they wanted someone to stand in their stead, if you like. Um, and I'd been the training officer um, in, my, in our regiment in the army, so I'd already got a tr- training qualification. I'll, I'll never forget, once I'd, I'd had this interview and they offered me the job, I was waiting for this big manual of of things that I've got to do. And when nothing came through, I ended up having to ask and say, look, ex- exactly what do you want me to do? And, and Ken said, well, if you've been a training manager in the army, he says, this will be a cinch. Whatever you do, don't break it. <laughs> um And my job was to be able to they got an incredible, great vision for the business. And my job was to be able to ensure that all 47000 employees were inspired by the vision and were trained and qualified and capable of being able to deliver it across the stores. So I spent a lot of time with the non exec board and I've got a lovely handwritten testimonial on the wall from Ken that said, I'm not quite sure how one man managed to achieve so much but he enabled us to be able to add 486 million pound in additional revenue to the business. Um, Now, I would argue, I probably didn't add more than 20 or 30 quid when I filled up with fuel one day. Um, What I did do is I used my blue ocean strategy thinking and, and a lot of disruptive pattern thinkings to be able to really challenge the board to be able to say, why are you still doing the things that you've always done and still expecting a different outcome? Life's moved on, we've got to move with it. Can we start to look at some new initiatives and to engage with shop floor workers and say, look, what's working and what's not? Because you understand customers a lot more than a non-exec board do. So how do we get information from the bottom up to the top and back again with an agreement to go ahead and do things quicker than the months and quarters that it took? Because a lot of the initiatives that were being quashed at at, at grassroots level would have been brilliant initiatives if they just had the opportunity to be able to do things so i just i just came along and helped people to empower a workforce to start thinking for themselves
0: Absolutely love that, Jay. I mean, I've I think I found in my business trying to empower my staff probably one of the most powerful things because I used to want to do everything. And like you just said, if they're doing the same thing and expecting a different result, well, that is the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So, you know, I love the fact that you've gone in and you've come from this grass cutting job and you've created the value in there. You've got them thinking a different way. So, tell me, Morrison's. How long were you there? And then what was the next stage of, you, of your career?
1: So I did. So it was a 12 month tenancy with a three month handover. So I was there for 15 months. Um, I was offered the chance to be able to job share with the original training director. When she came back, she wanted to do part time on the way back in again. But it was very evident that it was it was her job, and I'd just been sitting in the seat for a while. I, it, it wasn't going to be a, a good mix for the two of us to be able to try and manage the train set between the two of us. Um, I was headhunted to go and do the same thing with Marks and Spencer. Um, I went to go and work with Marks and Spencer. I considered it, but I didn't feel that there was I didn't feel that there was enough of that I could do to, to add enough value to what they were offering. Um it looked like it was pretty much done and they just needed someone to polish things off. And and I'm not a polisher, I'm a, I'm a roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty type chap. Um so I chose to leave that. Um I went and did some change management work with the NHS. Um there were six of us that were commissioned with trying to save 17 million pounds for the ambulance service. Um the the, the remit was we had to save 17 million pound a year to prevent 4,600 redundancies, um, and over a period of about 15, 16 months, me and a team of five others across the country, I was responsible for the northeast of England. Um, 23 ambulance stations were in my uh, were in my remit from Hull all the way up through to the Scottish border, or well, Lincoln really, all the way through to the Scottish borders. Um, and although we saved 23 million quid. Um, and handed it back to the nhs within weeks of us leaving they chose to make 4,600 redundancies anyway um and the reason why i chose to step away from corporate was i lived in that area i drank with some of the people that we'd been working with that subsequently as a result of their choice to make them redundant now looked at us as if we were the ones that had instigated it even though we'd saved the money that prevented them and i went do you know what i I don't want to be a cog in somebody else's wheelhouse anymore. I want to do things for myself where I've only got myself to blame. So I chose to leave corporate behind, and I cheated. I bought an existing business. I I, I take my hat off to anyone that's left a salary and woken up one day with a mobile phone and a laptop and a good idea and said, right, I'm going to do it myself. I left a good job with a good good pay and a good handout. And I chose to invest it wisely by buying a small small existing business and then implementing all of the things that I've done from the military, from Ken, from the NHS, and then grow that into a bigger business. So I bought a business with four staff. Um, I grew it to 22 staff. I sold it to the senior leadership team. And I guess because this is a fail forward podcast, the bit that I don't always talk about is when we went from 17 staff back to 10 staff and I ended up having to make seven redundancies.
0: Yeah, and that's tough, isn't it? And that's, that's tough to do. Yeah. How did that feel?
1: Well, when we first met, we, we ended up having that brief conversation about being a business owner and losing stuff. And, you know, you talk about being emotive. Making seven redundancies in November 2008 was more painful than learning to walk again
0: in 2000. Yeah, wow, wow. Yeah, it just shows that's the, it was one of the toughest things. It's probably the reason why my business went under is because at the time that I should have been laying staff off, I didn't, I was wanting to keep everyone on and looking after them because I knew all their pet names, kids names, everything, and it is, it's 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 they always say one of the toughest things about business is managing people isn't it but also managing people and having the responsibility for their you know for their for their futures on your hands as well so it's 2023 today and I'm, i still wear that scar badly yeah i could imagine and what was that business uh, i bought a health
1: and safety consultancy that specialized in fire sprinkler systems
0: right <laughs> i had little knowledge of health and safety and no knowledge of fire sprinkler systems but you made but you made it work because you went you went in, grew it, went backwards, and then went forwards again, right yeah, we basically we'd signed a deal
1: we'd signed our first major national contract that was going to add seven hundred thousand pounds to the business um but at the time of signing it i didn't have any staff i didn't have sufficient staff to honor the contracts we'd just signed um, so I had to quickly go out and recruit and and to do so, as quick as we did, I ended up having just to poach some staff from a competitor. Um, I was I was somewhat, I say underhand, I didn't do anything illegal, but I certainly twisted some arms to be able to get the amount of people I needed at the time frame that I had within, you know, to, to achieve it. Um, so I recruited seven people, you know, I've got to put some cash in the pocket and a salary and a, a mobile phone and a company car and all that type of malarkey that goes with it in order to be able to honor this contract. And we'd signed this two-year contract to be able to do an audit of 884 stores across the UK with the potential of having to upgrade about 20% of the stores to be able to meet the new legal responsibilities under fire, uh, fire, fire safety. So it was at least a £730,000 contract. It was possibly a 1.3, 1.4, if there was the need for renovation and upgrade. And we'd taken these seven staff on over a two-year period fixed-term contract and 57 days into that two-year contract, Deloitte's phoned us on a Friday afternoon to say that Woolworths had just been put into re- uh, into receivership and we weren't going to get paid a penny. Uh, and and what happened next? Well, in, in about six minutes, I realised that I'd lost about £225,000 worth of invoice value. I'd lost £96,500 worth of salaried value. Um, I'd already my business was already up to the hilt in debt because I'd reinvested in buying the business and and, and re reinvigorate. It was only two and a half years after I bought the business, and I was still paying off the, the loans to buy it. um So I'd ended up remortgaging the house. I ran up on my personal credit cards. All of that type of malarkey to try and keep it keep it afloat. um A lot of pressure. Yeah. The, it cost me my marriage on the premise that my wife had said that I put the business before the before the family. Um, so yeah, there was a there was a lot riding on it. It was a tough time, but you can't bail out at the bottom, can you? You know. Um, so we did a turnaround. We did some some really really aggressive. Um, I had a phenomenal team. I, we wouldn't have been able to achieve anything had it not been for the team that we kept. We just had to say we're going to have to do a a, a a deferred salary payment plan. Um, that we owe you this money, but we can't afford to pay you everything up front. So, can you afford to accept 65% of your salary right now, and we'll pay you back the rest as we can? Um, we got people to work evenings and weekends without any overtime. As a team, we just pulled together to do whatever was necessary. In 2009 was just an ugly year. It was just you didn't sleep; you just worked. Um, but thankfully, we told our story to enough people about what had happened and what we were doing about it, and we won the sympathy of. People like Del Monte Orange Juice were one of the first clients to sign with us after we'd, after we'd lost. Um, W.H. Smith did a little bit of work with us. We started to tell the story. We won some more clients. We turned the business around. But three years later, even though the business was growing and we'd taken on some more staff and we were, we, we were almost debt-free, the cost of it had had on me personally, I'd fallen out of love with it. It, it, it was now a noose instead of a business. And even though the business was doing well, I, I hated going to work. And so in 2011, I sold it to the senior leadership team and said, get on with it.
0: Great great move because I, I can relate to this so much because very similar to me um you know we didn't recover from it but we lost it all um and very similar we had lots of debt you know money out on our house everything um tough times we fortunately managed to keep keep my relationship with my wife but that was very touch and go so I can understand how much pressure that would have put on your marriage um and also on yourself when you're in that position and it sounds like you had a fantastic team and I always talk about how it's important it is to have the, the right people around you and that definitely sounds like it helped and also again we're talking about vulnerability and talking and you're telling pete your story out through that you said a few times you told your story so that must have had a good impact and a lot of people always say to me henry why did you tell everyone you lost your business and all, all this tragic stuff and i'm like because one i want to help other people and two because it's it's important to be honest with everybody isn't it
1: i think behind every super successful business is an incredible story um, you've only got to look at Microsoft, you've only got to look at Apple, you've only got to look at Tesla. And behind the business, there's a story. Um,
0: and what we've been through is part of our story. Definitely, definitely. It makes us who we are and where we've got to. At you know at this point, you've then had, um, you've sold sold out to your management team, which I can completely relate to, because I find that in my business now, we restarted the tree surgery business and we've been going for three years and I've now got a management team, which protects me from it. But I think when something as difficult as that happens, that you are in, a, it, it does have some underlying things that just, it. Oh, you know, I fell out of love with my business for a while and it's taken me a time to get back into it. So at this point, you've then, you've you've sold out to the management team and then you're kind of back to, Back to square one again aren't you really so 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 what 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 happened next well that's that's when i won my
1: award um or 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 the first award really um as we sold the business i'd been a member of the when i bought the business it was a member of the federation of small businesses and we saw benefit of being so so we remained a member throughout my tenure of the uh, of the business and and the year that i sold the business um i was nominated and subsequently won the fsb regional businessman of the year um which was very nice and very complimentary i was very taken by it um but it was the first time that i'd stopped to realize that not all small business owners were doing what we were doing um i was just busy in my business and doing what we were doing and you know through a turnaround, you, you, you're you busy. I mean, as you know, you, there's not enough hours in a day to be able to try and manage everything. So you just get your head down and you're just doing what you're doing. And you go to these FSB meetings and you meet other people and they talk about their business and you talk about yours. And I just had this assumption that we were all doing the same as me. And it wasn't until I won this award for, for Business Man of the Year that I subsequently went, Well, isn't everyone doing this? Uh, uh, and they went, No, Jay, um, you're, you're quite a success story and I went oh, oh right um and this chap came to me i'd known him for years this chap came to me punched me on the arm um as you do um, and says listen lad he says i've been running my business for 38 years now he says how come you've come from nowhere and overtaken me in twopence? what's going on what's your secret um and i said well to be honest with you i've i've sold the business i've i've got nothing to do if you if you'd like me to come in and spend a couple of days with you and have a look at if there's anything I can do to help let me know right I'll see you Monday um, so I went in and I, 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 I got to his business he was in an import export business I got no knowledge of import export whatsoever um, he got half a dozen staff they were doing what six hundred thirty, six 640,000 pound turnover a year um but I was horrified because we would got all of these things nailed down and we knew what to do and when and how, and we got some systems and some processes and we got a great team. And, this and, this. and I got to his business. I'm thinking this must be a nightmare. You've been doing this for 38 years. Have, have you not gone mad? Um, he got nothing in place. Um, when he wasn't there, he would got six members of staff that used to turn up and sit in the crew room and pay cards till he did. And if he didn't turn up for the day, they did nothing but play cards because there was nobody to tell them what to do. Um, and they, they had to have someone to tell them what to do because nothing was documented. There was no systems or processes. It was all in his head. And I'm thinking, this is just mad. So I ended up spending well, nearly seven months going in four days a week and slowly putting into play systems and processes and sitting with him and working out what what do you do and then why do you do and how do you do and why... just understanding the import export business and then putting all the processes in place in order that if he was to keel over at least somebody could pick up the reins and run with it um and in doing so we doubled his turnover in seven months um and that's when that, that that's when you know i i won a i won a second award for a turnaround for his business and we subsequently realized perhaps there's something in this um I got invited to go and be a lecturer for the MBA program at Preston University um, and start teaching entrepreneurship. Um, And at the same time, I'm not going to name names because that would be unfair. But at the same time, there was lots of things on social media or a few, shall we say, just well-known names um, that were selling a business success blueprint. So I went to the university with the premise of, listen, We're teaching the next generation about entrepreneurship, but everything in an MBA is theoretical. And here's this guy who's very well known and does millions of pounds in turnover that's selling a business success blueprint. Perhaps we ought to buy one to determine what's missing in our MBA course. And that was the premise for for, for allowing or or getting UCLANs to spend a few quid and buy his course. And don't get me wrong, it's a great course. There's there's lots of teachings, there's lots of learning, there's lots of help and support and this and the other. What was missing is what I call the critical ingredient. Because everything that he taught in his business success blueprint academy was how he'd become successful. On his knowledge and his background and his experience and his qualifications and his network. And the people that were buying it there was nowhere that said, and this is how it translates to what you need to do in your business. This is, this is what, what does success mean to you? And is what we are delivering going to deliver that for you? And the simple fact is, it's the elusive ingredient that no one knows what it is on the premise that we're all busy growing our own business, that we haven't got the time or the inclinations to try and help somebody else understand what they need to do in theirs. So there was this vital missing ingredient. So instead of looking at success and what does success mean, I chose through the MBA programs to be able to commission a team of 16 business analysts to look at what causes businesses to fail. And I said, and I've got a great example. We're going to use a subject's access data request to Deloitte, and we're going to buy the data that they use to
0: close Woolworths. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) because i know about this (laughs) yeah that hurt me as well you know yeah
1: so the university were up for it we bought this data the data came in even though it was four years later i had no recollection of how emotive it was going to be to look at this data and how i realized that i couldn't be pragmatic in looking at it sensibly Because of the impact it had had on me, I had to step back and say to these university students, they're all second year university students. Listen, you you just got to work with this and I'll I'll support you to work on it rather than working on it with you. Because it was so evident that Woolworths, it was destined for, for failure. It was more a case of when will it fail than will it fail? But one of the things that the analysts said to me was, Jay, we can't look at this in isolation. We need some more data to make comparisons. So we went back to KPMG and Deloitte and under subjects access to requests, we started to look for data for um, Norton motorcycles, Blockbuster Video, Tyrac, um, DFS sofas, the first and the second time, um, Toys R Us. Over a four year period, we studied 153 national business failures to look at what causes good businesses to fail. And we found three flaws in all 153 businesses.
0: Wow, OK, I'm really intrigued by this.
1: <laughs> if you've got any one of the three flaws, it's still easy enough to overcome and resolve You've just got to spend a little bit of time and effort looking at it, but it's but it's overcomable. Once you've got two of the three floors, and it doesn't matter which three, but any two, once you've got two of the floors, you cannot continue to grow without it causing you to fail. The best you can do is bottleneck and glass ceiling and stay where you are. But the more times that people try and push through the glass ceiling that they've created for themselves, the more likelihood they are of failing at the end. And once all three in place, it's a case of when will it fail rather than if it will fail. So once we got this data and we'd identified what these flaws were, I wanted to then understand, so when does a a business become big enough that these flaws become prevalent? And why don't we attach? Why don't we address them at the time? Why don't we? Why do we cover them up and hope that it doesn't have a problem for us when the evidence shows that ultimately, you know, when Woolworths went bust, thirty-seven thousand people got made redundant, and how shit I felt having made seven people redundant—that must have been—that must have been horrible. Um, so we went to the Chamber of Commerce, who were kind enough when we shared the data with them, and they saw the mass amount of data that we were giving them to have access to they were kind enough to incentivize their members they've got about 300,000 sme business members and they were willing to incentivize their members by saying we'll offer you a 3 month extension on your membership if you complete this survey so ultimately we bought the data by about 75 quid in in value to the to the end user to get them to complete our survey and over a 10 month period 117,000 smes completed the survey so not only now can we map where the three flaws are but we can now determine size of business uh, industry sector and understand when it's likely to cause a problem and what
0: you need to do to try and correct it and that's what i now do I, I now teach people how not to fail i absolutely love that and you know what when i met you jay i had no idea this was going to come up in this podcast and it couldn't be more fitting for fail forward and business and everything. So what, tell me, I'm in such suspense now. What are the three things? Okay, so I'm going to watch your face as I tell you to find out (laughs) as to where it sits with
1: this. 54% of businesses that fail, fail because they don't have a business plan. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't get to the size of Woolworths and not have a business plan. So the rules around that are, the business plan needs to be up to date and not something Woolworths their business plan was 13 years old the year that they went bust in those 13 years Amazon had come along <laughs> and yet they hadn't
0: readdressed their business plan accordingly and, and I suppose um I suppose Blockbuster was the same because I always know the story of Blockbuster where they actually turned down buying Netflix <laughs> yeah yeah you know I mean, Their business plan was nine years
1: old. So a business plan is a living document that we have to update and keep updated regularly. The second caveat to it is a business plan needs to be known by the people in the business and not just by the business owner. So you might not share all of your financials with all your members of staff and stakeholders, but everyone in a business needs to understand why are they doing what they're doing. So a business plan needs to be up to date and shared within the team so we all understand what we're doing and why. The third and final caveat for the the business plan element is, and you can't have a maverick. One of the reasons why Norton Motorcycles failed was they were doing exceptionally well. Their operations director got headhunted and chose to go and work elsewhere and was replaced by somebody new who determined that they needed to prove themselves, they needed to show what they're capable of and ignored the business plan and went off on a tangent. And 19 months after he was hired, the business filed for bankruptcy. So a business plan has to be up to date, known and followed. Okay, so 54% of businesses if they haven't got a written business plan, get a written business plan, share it with the team or get the teams to contribute towards it and then follow it religiously. 54% of businesses will, will, will now be out of the mire if they follow that salient advice. The second is what I call PSP, the people, system, process dichotomy. Businesses that do badly are the ones that are so system and process driven that it uninspires people. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a necessity for businesses to have systems and processes and things that we follow, but if you make them so authoritarian and dogged that we can't have personality or evolution or innovation then in actual fact, people become uninspired. You lose your top talent. People works to rule. And as we found in today's society, the whole world goes on strike. Meanwhile, businesses that do particularly well, and we can look at this through what happened in COVID and lockdown and the amount of extreme circumstances that businesses found themselves in, people, businesses that put people first, their suppliers their employees and their customers and have systems and processes that support the people to achieve the outcome are the ones where people pull together and it doesn't matter what shit gets thrown at us we overcome it and we get through the other side
0: yeah and would you say that's kind of like it sounds very much like you've got systems and processes but then there's a really strong company culture and that strong company culture has is, is got the right vision and values, and it's going, you know, it's, it's, it, that encumbers that giving the people the opportunity to be in a, in a, to innovate and to, to lead and to not micromanage and, and to feel like they can turn up. Vision comes from the top, culture
1: comes from within, systems and processes get bolted onto it to achieve vision not a business owner that walks in and says i've just bought 54 apple mac computers you're all going to use those from now on in because if you just create a process and then force people to work within it you're not allowing them to be the best that they can be and 39 percent of businesses fail because they become as they grow become too system and process driven as opposed to being people-centric so that's two. The third one is a little bit more complicated. I call it the holistic business, and it's where businesses grow and often grow very quickly, but at the result of, they create silos within themselves. There isn't enough internal communication and collaboration that sales starts to compete with marketing, and marketing doesn't tell operations what they're doing, and operations does hates finance, and finance doesn't know who is in HR, and all of, this team, all of the business starts to become sub-businesses that in actual fact start to compete with each other
0: unnecessarily or unintentionally, and the business just implodes. And again, it, this is almost, that, that second and third one, they're almost linked, aren't they, really? Because again, that's almost cultural as well, isn't it? And having the right communication and having, that, having a strong value in the company of communication and everyone working as a team and together, depending on your company values. Massively so, you know. I think all three of them are intrinsically linked.
1: Um, But to the same extent, you won't get to the third one without having the first and second in place anyway. So having a business plan to grow a business, having some team and being team-centric or people-centric, and then subsequently saying, as we grow in development, and we've got a, a second office, or we've now got a sales team, as opposed to the guy that does sales, um to understand that we've got to have more collaboration internally and that we are all a customer of each other as opposed to simply saying who's got the lion's share of the budget and
0: how are we going to spend it i absolutely love that i mean this is gold jay absolute gold um so tell me that you, this is now what you do and you help businesses and i know so i know you do coaching and you've got the boardroom How do you facilitate that? What is your product, and what do you what do you do? Just so if anyone's listening, they know where to come and they know what you offer and how you put that together. So, predominantly for the last six and a
1: half seven years, I've hosted mastermind groups. Um, Yes, I do. I have done a little bit of one to one consultancy in the past or one to one coaching in the past, but predominantly I host mastermind groups, um, whilst implementing some of our add a zero methodology, the, 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 this this holistic approach to business, I, I, I've now branded and called add a zero. Um, it, it's the same as our book, you know, how to add a zero um, is about being able to put the things in place to prevent you from failing so you can go ahead and be successful and not have to follow somebody else's example. So ultimately for the last seven years, I've been running mastermind groups to be able to help support people to learn how to collaborate and communicate better um, in business. Um, however, at the time of recording this, we are literally on the verge of next month, uh, no, sorry, March. So six weeks away from launching licensing of our Adazero methodology to teach other people how to be able to go and commercialize that methodology, either within their own business or within their own mastermind groups.
0: Wow. Love that. And why, why is it? Because you know I love masterminds. I run my own mastermind. But I want to ask you, what? why do you love masterminds and why have you got, chosen that mastermind model?
1: I go back to the original 1920s version of Mastermind from the Mastermind Alliance of Napoleon Hill. We don't know what we don't know and whilst I've got a wealth of experience and knowledge now from what I've shared with you, from my military, from my corporate, from my own business experience, I still go into Mastermind and learn something every single day. Um, I've, fought, I've been really fortunate enough to have been experienced and exposed to mastermind for the last 17 years now. I, 17 years ago, I first joined my first ever mastermind group and then seven years later, I started to host them um, <clears throat> off the back of having sold the business to help other people to understand it. But rather than one-to-one coaching where it's very much specific, unusually solution-based problems, you know, problem-solution-based, I love the fact that Prior to the day, I have no prior knowledge or experience about what someone is going to bring to the table. And then when somebody brings a problem or a hurdle or a concern to the table, it's never, how do I fix this? It's guys, girls, how do we come together? And what can we come up with to fix this? That the level of conversation, the level of learning and sharing and collaboration that happens over that period of time, the solution that they go away with, is always beyond what anyone would have achieved if I'd sat down and worked with them on a one-to-one basis. And the idea of collaboration takes me back to my military days. As a single soldier, you feel quite exposed. As a battalion, you feel invincible
0: love that yeah i mean you're, you're so right and having that growth mindset of you know you're going into every situation even though you're facilitating these mastermind groups you're still learning and i feel like that i love being part of mastermind groups i think i'm part of six at the moment i always feel like i'm just you know but i love being part of it and i love one of the reasons why i love being part of a mentees in, in in these groups is because when you're helping other people that's the that's the feeling that just keeps keeps giving you back you know you could have all the money in the world but i think we are um as human beings one of our purposes in life is to help other people right and i think you get that from the mastermind group and then when you facilitate your own one and you're then facilitating other people helping each other and then you're doing it it's one of those feelings that just keeps giving back massively so i mean there's i always say that the role that we sit
1: in as hosts of a mastermind has got to be the most privileged and um, an honoured position that we could possibly be in business. I've I've never come across anywhere else, be it networking or masterclasses or anything else, where you get to lift the lid off. And instead of looking through rose-coloured spectacles about all the things that are good and great in a business, to be able to sit down and talk about the problems and the difficulties and the hurdles that we all face. And yet outside of that environment, we don't feel comfortable or capable of being able to share it. And to be in that environment and have the privilege of being able to sit with somebody and and diagnose a problem and then work a way through of how to overcome it. Not just how to fix it, but how did we break it down to see the way forward so you've got the competence to be able to do it yourself next time um, is just an honorary position that we can only
0: ever... Um, only ever be grateful for the opportunity to be to be able to do. Yeah, absolutely love that, Jay. Love that, Jay. So, are your um, masterminds are they in person, are they on Zoom, or are they they a hybrid? So we do both, um, but we don't do a hybrid. Um, we have a we have a
1: physical mastermind um, for larger businesses, um, usually million pound turnover plus. Um, although that's it's not a criteria to get in, but we tend to say our physical mastermind is for business businesses that have already got a significant sized team.
0: Um, and then an online mastermind for people perhaps aspiring to get there in the future. Yeah, absolutely love that. And if anyone's interested in speaking to you about this, how would they get a hold of you? Um, either through the book, a Zero, um, or the website of the same name. Um, alternatively, um,
1: our, our masterminds are run under my business coaching name of My True North. Um, if you don't mind, can I quickly share with you for two seconds just the, the, the idea behind the names so people can understand why?
0: Yeah, 100 yeah yeah, go for it
1: Henry let's assume for one minute that your goal in life not in business but your aspiration in life was that you'd love to say to your grandkids one day that you would trekked to the North Pole now it doesn't matter whereabouts in the UK you are you can't simply get on a Ryanair flight and nip out for the weekend in order to be able to get to the North Pole one you're going to have to have done some training two you're probably going to need a team of other people to help and support you And then three, on the day of your choice, we're going to sit and wait for the needles to settle on the N on the compass and then utter those immortal words, right, chaps, follow me. (laughs) And you follow the N religiously. From the UK, you're going to find yourself in Scandinavia because you're following magnetic north. And true north, the North Pole, this year is 12 and a half degrees to the east of Magnetic North because of the magnetic impulses in the Northern Hemisphere. And yet, if you didn't know that, or you didn't know that last year it was 11 degrees and next year it'll be 13 degrees, if you didn't know that, you'd never make it there. And it's exactly the same in business. We start out with a good idea, we've got some training, some background, we might have a team of people to help us, support us. We set out, we get our head down and we do the doing. And we don't realise that for every time that we're doing the doing, unless there's somebody else on the outside holding us to account, we're probably one degree off what we need to be doing in order to achieve what we set out to achieve. And My True North is designed to be able to just be the compass to point people back in the right direction.
0: Absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. That's amazing. Um, And what we'll do is we'll put, to anyone listening, we'll put... um, jay's links into the bio so you can click on those and and connect with jay uh, uh, because it, i mean even i'm gonna have a look at that as well myself because i just think there's so much value that you can you can help me with within my network of businesses do you know what this listen what why do we why don't we finish by by, by making a, a really decent offer to say
1: sincerest of thanks yeah. for listening in today and simply say If you, as a listener, would like to be able to have a free audit on the current status of your business, the current opportunities or vulnerabilities based on the Adazero methodology, if you want to take part in this study that's now been completed by well over 120 other thousand businesses, and for us to give you a report on the current vulnerability of your business, then visit adazero.co.uk forward slash free scale audit. And we'll happily give you a bespoke report on the current opportunity or vulnerability in your business.
0: Love that. I'm going to go and do that as well. I'm going to do that later on this evening. Once I'm all done for the day, uh, kids are in bed, I'm going to go and do that. So you'll, you'll expect to see my details come through. Wow, what an interview this has been, Jay. I would just like to say, firstly, this is a record for Fell Ford on the longest interview but but that is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because the value, I mean, what a story. What an absolute inspiration you are, Jay. I, you know, the, the the difficult times you've got, got, gone through, you know, they say diamonds are formed under pressure. And I can certainly say from just, you know, the second time I've met you are an absolute diamond. And I thank you for sharing everything you have. I thank you for your vulnerability. I thank you for, you know, not taking your life when you're going through those suicidal, su- suicidal patterns because I'm sure, I don't know how many lives you've, you've, you've affected, but I'm sure you've affected a lot of po- positivity in people's lives in, you know, in the last couple of decades since your recovery. So, you know, absolutely overwhelmed by, by how inspirational you are as a person, Jay. Have you got any final words you'd like to say to our Fail Forward audience? Failure is great. You only fail
1: if you quit.
0: Yes. Love that. Love that. I always say failure is only a negative if you give up. You don't learn from it and you give up. So yeah, absolutely love that, Jay. Thanks so much for being part of Fail4 podcast. I've I've learned, I've learned more from other people's failures than I ever had from my own success. Yeah, yeah, definitely definitely love it's just another lesson isn't it it is it's is just another bit of experience it's a life lesson you know i, I don't look at it this way henry one last thing look yeah, at it this yeah, way yeah. there are more multimillionaires in america that have been
1: bankrupt twice than there are millionaires in america wow if you haven't failed and then learned from it you haven't yet tried hard enough
0: yeah yeah. And, and you know what America's so different to England, where it comes to the failure of businesses. When I failed in my business, it was, it was dirty. It was, you know, everyone sort of kicked me while I was down and you go to America and they wear it like a badge and rightly so, because you learn, as you say, you learn so much from those situations. You're so right. And, uh, you know, people are trying to try, trying to get perfect all the time. And I don't believe in perfection. I've been even constantly failing forward. So, so many yeah, amen. So many golden nuggets. Thank you so much for being part of this um episode, Jay. And um yeah, um I know I'll be definitely be seeing you in I think March when you're gonna be on stage, at Expert Empires, which um So looking forward to that. Yeah, very looking forward to seeing that interview, even more so now, and um I'm sure I shall um I shall meet you in person in the future and I'll go and do your um your Ad a Zero um audit later on today. So thank you, Jay. Thanks for being part of l Four Podcast. Thank you so much for the
1: invitation, it's been a real pleasure, thank you.